want us to talk about the importance of understanding who Jesus really is. Sadly, in our society, there are many groups, many people that teach that Jesus is really no different than any of us. Some groups say that Jesus was simply a a great moral teacher whose sayings were twisted by power-hungry apostles. He was just a good guy, and they took what he said and made it into something it wasn't supposed to be. Other groups say that, that Jesus was just a man and not God, or, or others insist that Jesus was God, and like all of us are gods, or we can become a god if we just work hard enough. There are large groups that believe that. Recently in London, a group of humanists and atheists were attempting to convince folks about the non-existence of God in a typical non-religious venue on the sides of buses all over the city. Actually, they, they promoted this all over the world. The message was short and pithy. Pithy, if you watch Bill O'Reilly, you know what that is. Um, said things like this, there's, prob- there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and, wor- and enjoy your life. The signs have appeared recently in several parts of of Great Britain, and the messages are also appearing on buses in Barcelona, Spain, with plans for similar ads in Toronto, Canada this spring. In Washington, D.C., the American Humanist Association introduced a similar ad campaign right before the Christmas holidays. Uh, They also put their message on the side of buses, and one of them proclaimed, Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. In Italy, the Union of Rational Atheists and Agnostics, the UAAR, has sponsored bus ads in Genoa reading this. The bad news is that God doesn't exist. The good news is that you don't need Him. And this is the world that we live in. This is what a lot of people's view of who God is. And when we start to see things like that, it can become... Sometimes a bit disconcerting and often, often easy to think that the entire world is headed in that direction. But let me assure you that is not true for a number of reasons. I'll give you an example. There is some kind of a football game that's going on this afternoon. I think it's called the Super Bowl. Win or lose, I assure you if he gets the opportunity during today's Super Bowl, Arizona Cardinals quarterback, Kurt Warner, will declare to millions of people on television exactly what he believes about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what the game is. It doesn't matter that he is the quarterback. It doesn't matter that he's a quarterback that's won a Super Bowl before. He never misses an opportunity to tell who Jesus is. Here's what he told a stadium full of Cardinals fans and a national TV audience on after the Cardinals won the NFC Championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles on January 18th. I never get tired of saying it. I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for allowing me to be here and do the things I do. One night after a Monday night football game in November, Warner said his mind often thinks about how awesome God is. He blesses me over and over. I just can't say enough about the position that he puts me in. So regardless of what people are doing around the world, putting on buses that God doesn't exist, it doesn't change the fact that He does exist. And it also doesn't change the fact that there are still people 
that will proclaim that he does exist because they know who he is. There's some of you sitting here today. And if you watch the Super Bowl this afternoon, which I'm sure many of you will, you will see that if there's a chance, there is not only Kurt Warner, but there are others that will make sure that they speak out as to their belief in God because they know who he is. Many people believe that Jesus lived, but they see him as a, a wise philosopher or a, a social revolutionary, maybe even a kind healer. The problem is that their knowledge doesn't change the way that they live. They believe that he lived, but it doesn't change the way that they live. And they don't love him, and therefore they don't serve him. They just believe that he lived. Why? Because they really don't see him for who he is. That's really what it comes down to. If people saw Jesus Christ for who he really was, they would have to believe that he is who he said he is. There are points in most people's lives that could be described as, as hinge experience or experiences or turning points. It could be a number of things. It could be things like getting married, having a child, graduating from college, going to a foreign country and seeing how other people live. I think my son, when he talked last Sunday about his missions trip, baseball trip, um, I think you could see that there was a, a place that was changed in his life that will never be the same. And each of these experiences is almost guaranteed to change a person's life forever, whether it's marriage or having children or graduated from college, getting into that career that you worked all those years for, or maybe retiring from that career that you worked all those years in. They are life-changing experiences. And today, in the scripture that we're going to read, we're going to look at a hinge experience or a turning point in the lives of Peter, James, and John. These men were already committed to following Jesus. They'd followed Jesus for years. But because of their commitment, Jesus invited them to witness his transfiguration. And this became a turning point in their life because as a result of this event, they gained a greater understanding of what Jesus had been teaching about himself. They knew who Jesus was. They loved Jesus. They had given up everything to follow him, but there was something that was getting ready to happen that would change their lives forever. Some would say, well, why only Peter, James, and John? Actually, there was a couple other times in Jesus' ministry where Jesus included only these three men. There was a time when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he sent everybody else out except Peter, James, and John. Later, when he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, he chose Peter, James, and John to follow him up to a certain point and told them to stay and pray while he went on ahead. And these events show, they seem to show, that Jesus had an especially close relationship with these three men. Now, in spite of that, with that being said, that he had this, this extraordinary relationship with these three of the twelve, there was still something getting ready to happen that would change their life and they would never look at Jesus the same. Matthew 17, 1 through 3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. 
And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. In the previous chapter, in the 16th chapter of Matthew, Jesus had already acknowledged himself to be the Messiah, and he predicted his approaching death. And the problem with that is that it really didn't, this revelation didn't really fit into the plans for Peter, James, and John's version of what the kingdom Jesus was, had spoken about in the past. I say that because they weren't wanting an, this kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. They were wanting only an earthly kingdom. They thought Jesus was going to come in and, and take over the, the Roman Empire and kick all the leaders of the Roman Empire out, set up a kingdom, and they would get to be in his kingdom as whatever place they could be. And now Jesus is telling them he's going to die. Well, what about the kingdom? Again, keep in mind, the Jews had been under oppression by the Roman rule for a long time. And they were looking forward to a Messiah that would set them free from Roman oppression. That was it. So at this point, when they find out that Jesus is getting ready, he's telling them he's going to die pretty soon, I'm sure at the very least they were disappointed. And possibly confused or maybe even scared. In more than one, that's a good question. I've thought about that same thing this week. In more than one account of this of this happening, it said specifically that it was Moses and Elijah. And you you have to kind of wonder how they knew it was knew it was Moses and Elijah. They didn't really have a lot of pictures of them. Um, the only thing I can, and this is my own personal opinion, the only thing that I can think is that their names came up somewhere in the conversation because Jesus was actually talking to them. So maybe in the conversation, Jesus addressed Moses as Moses and Elijah as Elijah. And therefore, when they went back and told Matthew about it, they said, hey, it was Moses and Elijah. We heard Jesus call him by name. And so Matthew wrote it down, and that's what we have today. That's my personal opinion. I have nothing to back that up. <laughs> but it makes sense. <laughs> How did they know? Yeah. Well, the fact that they kind of appeared out of nowhere kind of told them that they were somebody more than just normal people. So I'm sure they were listening closely to whatever the conversation was. So to strengthen Peter, James, and John for the trials that lay ahead them, ahead of them, six days later, Jesus has taken them up to a mountaintop. While they're on this mountaintop, Jesus lets them see his glorified state. Now this is this is something that's kind of kind of different and and it's something that we don't hear an awful lot about, but this revelation really confirmed to them that Jesus was truly the Christ, the son of God. You say, well, why did all this take this to believe it? Well, in spite of everything else they believed, in spite of any other doubts that they might have had, this was undeniable proof of who Jesus really was. There is no one else that could have done what happened here. 
And we'll look into that a little bit more. The word that Matthew used in, in chapter 17 and verse 2 to describe what they saw is the same word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. In other words, meaning it was an essential change in form. So what they saw, the word that Matthew used to describe what they saw, was right before their eyes they saw a metamorphosis. They saw a change. We think of, of that as happening from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Something changes drastically in the way that it looks. And so before their eyes, Jesus changed his, his look, completely changed. How did it change? I believe that it's, it's the best way to describe it would be that the glow on Jesus' face was a, a translucent glow. It was a, a glow that came from within, maybe similar to, to if you have a lampshade and you turn the light on inside the lampshade, you don't see the light bulb, but you see the glow that comes out. And I believe that's what they saw through Jesus. Matthew compared Jesus' visible glory to the brilliance of the sun. He even said that his clothes were bright as sunlight. Now here's, here's something interesting, and I had never thought of this before. When Moses came down in the Old Testament, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, it also says that his face shone with the glory of God. But there was a difference. Look at the difference here. Moses' brightness was external, and it eventually faded. On the other hand, Jesus' glory was internal, and it had always been there. It had just been hidden by his human form up until now. That internal light was always there. Jesus just kept it hidden under that human form, and what he did at this point is he allowed them to see his glory. In other words, and this is this, I love this. Moses simply reflected the light, and Jesus was the light. And we could almost just stop and go home right there. Because <laughs> that really tells the whole story right there. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it kind of puts it all into perspective now. But when Jesus appeared, he wasn't alone. As if he needed some other type of proof to show that there was something special going on here. There appeared with him, as we were just talking, two of the religious giants from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And many Bible scholars interpret it as why these two people and not somebody else, was that Moses represented the law. Remember, God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. So he represented the law. And Elijah, who was a remarkable prophet, represented all of the prophets who had told of the coming of the Messiah. So here's the two people. In the Jewish thinking, the law and the prophets were the two major categories of the Hebrew Scripture. In fact, Jesus, one time they asked him, what is the, what's the most important of the commandments? And when he told them, he said, on this hangs what? All of the law and the prophets. So that was like the summary of everything. So what better people to have show up here than Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets because on this hung everything. Exactly right. And so here you have Moses and Elijah who kind of were there to show that this was the old covenant and here is Jesus who fulfilled the entire old covenant. Matthew 17, verses 4 through 8. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. 
You got to love him. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. He's so human. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wow. If that doesn't validate who you are. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, the Old Testament prophets had predicted the Messiah's suffering and His glory that was to follow. And you wonder why Peter got so excited. This is why. Peter looks up and he sees the glory of Jesus and he realizes this is the Messiah. And he sees this tremendous glory and he's thinking back on this prophecy. And he's thinking, guess what? I just witnessed the glory. This is it. This is the glory part, which means the suffering part has already taken place. Because it was going to be suffering and then glory. And if this is the glory, we've gone through the suffering already. And you wonder why he was excited? Going back to the first part of that passage, verse 4. Lord, it's good for us to be here. In fact, it's so good, I'll put up three little, little huts here and we'll have one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. So Peter, being what I feel like was riddled with ADD, comes up with this idea of celebrating this glory by doing just that. Here is someone who is in this, he sees this transfigured body, this glorified state, and two people from the Old Testament that have been dead for an awful long time, and his solution is to build a, a shelter for them. And though Peter's motive was worthy, his timing, as it often was, was out of sync. It was not just out of sync with God's timing, it was out of sync with the prophecies of the Old Testament. Because he was eager to experience the glory part without the suffering part that Jesus had told them about. And that's a whole other study, so we won't go down that road. But we'll come back to it someday. Peter's enthusiasm really showed his lack of understanding. As he was making these inappropriate suggestions, it really happened. A bright cloud representing the presence of God enveloped the men that were standing on the mountain, all of them. And speaking from the cloud that covered the mountain, God spoke and gave Jesus his stamp of approval. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Incidentally, this is almost the same thing that was said at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry. But now that Jesus was, was facing the cross and he had already told him, my ministry is coming to an end and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be killed here not too long. These same words now served as an affirmation and a validation of Jesus' earthly ministry before the disciples. This was saying, all that you've seen, all of the things that you have seen Jesus do, 
This is God speaking, I'm going to tell you. This is my son. Listen to him. Wow. God's words terrified the disciples so much that they fell on their faces to the ground. And John Calvin said it this way in describing this. He said, God intended that the disciples should be struck with terror in order to impress more fully on their hearts the meaning of this vision. I believe God did that in such a dramatic way because He wanted it to be something that was in their heart that would never leave. This cloud covers this mountain, and this voice from heaven, God Himself, speaks in an audible voice. Do you think maybe that was their hinge experience? Do you think maybe this was their turning point? They were terrified. So they see Moses and Elijah and Jesus in this transformed body and God speaks from a cloud that engulfs the entire mountain and they fall to the ground with their faces to the ground. And Jesus responds in his typical fashion with encouragement and tenderness. He goes to them and he touches them and he says, Don't be afraid. Get up. It's okay. Get up. Again, as he had done so many times before, Jesus' actions reflected his deep affection for these three men. And when the disciples looked up, the Bible says that they saw only their, their friend, Jesus. The bright cloud, the Old Testament figures, Jesus' visible glory, they were all gone. Marjorie Holmes, author of the book, The Messiah, said it this way, of what they saw. Jesus was smiling, their friend unchanged. The dazzling white raiment was once more a simple homespun tunic. Everything was back to normal. Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples ask him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Don't tell anybody. How difficult would that be? Even knowing who Jesus was now, without a doubt... How difficult would it be to not tell anybody? But as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus says, Look, I just want you to keep this a secret until after I have been resurrected. Well, think the implications of that. Resurrected? You're not even dead yet. 
Is it that close, Jesus? Now, why, why did Jesus tell them that? Perhaps they weren't ready to explain what they had seen. Maybe they weren't prepared to, to explain a vision that they maybe didn't fully understand yet. See, it, when Matthew wrote it, they had had a chance to talk about it. This might have been months down the road or years down the road when Matthew wrote about it. And they'd all had a chance to sit around and talk about exactly what this meant. But at that time, I'm sure Peter, James, and John are coming down that hill going, I don't know what we saw up there. It was something. Good point. Good point. And, and exactly, that's, that's what I was just getting ready to say. Possibly Jesus didn't want too much disclosure regarding his Messiahship and his soon-to-be uh, crucifixion and death because it could be a discouragement to the other followers, the other disciples. As Brother Ashley said, maybe people would look at that and go, well, if he's getting ready to die, do we really want to put all of our eggs in that basket? Either way... The timing was just not right for the people at large to know Jesus' real identity as to who he was. So as they're coming down the mountain, the, the disciples question Jesus about something else, and they question him about Elijah's role concerning the Messiah. You see, the teachers of the law had always taught that Elijah would appear before the Messiah came. So what you're saying, Jesus, is you're the Messiah... And the teachers of the law have always taught that Elijah would appear before the Messiah. So can you explain that to us? Because we really do believe you're the Messiah after what we just saw. And the, these teachers had based this on a scripture in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, in which Malachi prophesied just that, that God would send Elijah to prepare the people for who would be the Messiah. And Jesus did not contradict these teachings. Instead, he explained that Elijah did come. You're exactly right, Peter, James, and John. But not like the people expected. And because he didn't come like they expected, the people harmed him. And just as Elijah had suffered, so will I. And then all of a sudden it went off in their head. He's talking about John the Baptist. That's who he's talking about. That's why people didn't realize that John the Baptist came as that figure of Elijah. He represented what all the prophets of the Old Testament had talked about. Here was the one that was coming to announce the Messiah, and it was John the Baptist, and the people didn't recognize him, and they killed him. And they're going to do the same thing to me. Jesus chose Peter, James, and John to witness the transfiguration probably because they had proved themselves to be more committed followers. Sometimes, especially Peter, was very outspoken and didn't really think all these things through before he spoke. But he was so committed to following after Christ. But through this experience, regardless how close they were before, through this experience they gained a greater understanding of Christ and His teachings. Peter later wrote 
in Second Peter 1 and 16, recalling his mountaintop experience, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't make this stuff up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I saw it with my own eyes. And the memory of this experience, this life-changing experience, this hinge experience, no doubt increasingly encouraged Peter, James, and John as their commitment to the Lord had deepened. Don't you think if you had followed a man all these years and you believed his teachings and you gave up everything to follow him, and even though you were committed to him, once you saw these events, you were more convinced than ever before. We can follow in Peter's footsteps, and if we do, we can also look forward to a deeper understanding of Jesus' teachings. The closer we draw to him, the more we'll understand what the Word says. And it should be exciting to us to realize that God's Word will become clearer as we grow into a more intimate relationship with Christ. You say, well, I read the Bible and I don't understand it. Well, I tell you how to understand it. Draw closer to God. Develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins. And when you have that intimate relationship, you will find yourself reading the Bible and all of a sudden things making a whole lot more sense. And the closer you get, the more you'll read it. And the more you read, the more you'll understand. That doesn't mean you'll just all of a sudden one day understand everything in here. I'm not saying that. But I will tell you this. The more that I have studied and the closer I have drawn to God, I have seen time and time again scriptures that I've read all my life come to light and I understand them. After my short 25 years on this earth. Or so. In fact... Just as with Peter, James, and John, the more experiences that we have with the Lord, the more we can anticipate new truths of God that He has in store for us. People in the world sometimes tell us that it's, it's wrong or crazy to have faith in, in Christ. And they tell us how dull Christianity is. It can be if we make it that. But if it is, it doesn't have to be. Our journey to where we are going can and should be this thrilling adventure to which we always look forward to with excitement. Stay with me just for a minute. Our path toward the high point of our, in our walk with Christ should have markers with those things, those hinge experiences, those turning points just as it was with Peter, James, and John. We talk so much about High Point Church, helping you to reach the high point in your walk with Christ. All along that walk with Christ, there should be those little markers that say, I remember that. That was a turning point in my life, and I remember specifically when I saw that, it changed everything in my life. Maybe we've known about Jesus since we were a child. But do we really recognize him as the Son of God? Remember, the disciples had been with Jesus every day for several years. 
And even the three closest of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, really didn't see him for who he was until that day on the mountain. Think what they'd seen. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. They had seen him feed thousands of people, maybe upwards of 20,000 people, with one small lunch that a little boy brought with him for himself. But they really didn't get it until that day on the mountaintop. And I'll ask you today, have you had your day on the mountaintop? Being committed to Christ does not mean being devoted to Him occasionally. In fact, the term occasional commitment is an oxymoron. The two words just don't go together. Try as you may, you cannot have an occasional commitment to God or anything else. Real commitment affects every phase of our life. There was a song written in the, in the 70s by Lanny Wolf. It was, the name of the song was Jesus Be the Lord of All. And there was a line in the song that said this, If you're not Lord of everything, then you're not Lord at all. And that's really what it boils down to. Either He is Lord of everything or He's not Lord at all. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, in fact, let's read that. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? This is before they went up on the mountain, by the way. Here's how the disciples answered in verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist. They found out a few days from then it wasn't. Others say Elijah. They found out that it wasn't him either. And others still say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And that was okay. He was asking them, who are people saying that I am? That's their opinion. That's those people's opinion. But this was the important question in the next verse. But what about you? Who do you say I am? In his book, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers said this. Great book. If you haven't read it, I have a copy of it. You're more than welcome to borrow it. Oswald Chambers said this in the book, My Utmost for His Highest. The mount is not meant to teach us something. It is meant to make us something. The moments on the mountaintops are rare moments, and they are meant for something in God's purpose. Those mountaintop experiences aren't just so we can see something cool. They are meant to change our life. They are meant to make us something more than what we are before we went up that mountaintop. I assure you, six days before, when Jesus had this conversation with His disciples, if they would have had this conversation seven days later, there would have been different answers. The answers would not have been, well, you know, you are this or you are that. We know for a fact who you are. Now I'll ask you this, this next week, as you pray, would you reflect back on some of those mountaintop, of experience, mountaintop experience that you might have experienced with Christ? And then ask yourself this, what did I take away from that? 
Without a doubt, Peter, James, and John were never the same after theirs. They had seen a lot, but never anything like this. And I believe that that experience was the thing that kept them focused on the task that was before them. Because shortly after that, it was only a very short time that Jesus was crucified and they were left without their friend. And I think without this mountaintop experience, with what they faced in the following few years, it would have been very difficult for them to make it. We don't know what lies ahead of us in the next few years. And without those mountaintop experiences, without those life-changing turning points, hinge experiences that happen in our life, in our walk with Christ, we might not be prepared to handle what comes along. But God sends us to those mountaintop experiences so that we can be changed. So that when we come down the mountain, we do not come down the way that we went up. So that down the road, when maybe we feel like we're alone, we know that I know who my God is. I will close with a couple questions. What was your mountaintop experience? That hinge experience or turning point in your walk with Christ. Have you allowed it to change you and change your life in the way that it changed Peter, James, and John? To find the answer to that last question, I think it's as simple as going back and asking yourself the question that Jesus asked His disciples in Matthew 16 and 15. But what about you? Who do you say I am? When we really understand who He is, we find that following Him suddenly becomes easier. When we really understand who He is, we will see things in the Scripture that we never saw before. When we really understand who He is, our lives will never be the same. If you've never made a start for God, why not today? Maybe you have, but you've never had that turning point or that hinge experience. If you haven't, then ask God to reveal to you who He really is. Allow you to have that mountaintop experience where you can see His glory and know without a doubt that He is exactly who He says He is. Because when He does... And we make Him the Lord of every part of our lives. We too, like Peter, James, and John, will never be the same. And we find ourselves being able to go forward and accomplish things for God that we never thought were possible. God bless you.